Hail and well-met, Traveler. Welcome to the Tavern. Did you know this is the place where more than half of the greatest adventures in history have begun? But before those adventurers took their first steps, they watched and calculated who would join their party. Why, look over there. There's a mighty barbarian from the Frozen Lands. Strong, mighty, full of honor and wisdom. I happen to know that one. They go by Matt Rossi. And look over there to the right. That woman working away on her mechanical dog. She's cunning, witty, and I've seen her bounce more than her fair share of ne'er-do-wells out of here before I can even blink. I happen to know that she goes by the name Liz Harper. And me? Oh, my name's Joe Perez. And I'll be your tavern keeper. Welcome to Tavern Watch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Tavern Watch, a roundtable round table free form discussion well, about gaming. Uh, I am one of your lovely hosts, Joe Perez, and I am joined by my fantastic host today. Uh, first, Liz Harper. How are you doing today, Liz? Doing great. Fantastic. And last but certainly not least among us is Matt Rossi. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm feeling like I'm the least among us. Definitely not. <laughs> I am. I, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm the least. I'm the least. <laughs> Uh, so I think we should get started with the uh, probably the biggest topic that we I think we have, uh, which is we just got our hands and I'm going to this is going to be where I'm going to make Liz talk. So ha, 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 uh, on the brand new D&D book, Liz, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about it? Um, well, I was hoping to have read it all by now, but gosh, it's there's a lot here. Uh, the new D&D book is called Wild Beyond the Witchlight, and it's all a, it's an adventure in the Feywild, and it expands on the Feywild in some interesting ways. But it's uh, primarily an adventure where you go into the Witchlight Carnival, which takes place in this part of the Feywild. And uh, what I think is so interesting about the carnival and about the book completely is that there are non-combat ways to do everything mm -hmm. you don't have to go in here and you know slaughter all of the inhabitants of the feywild because D, D has kind of a real problem with that where the solution to every problem is the pointy end of the hitting stick. it with a sword yeah yeah, yeah. and all you have uh, is fireball everything looks like a grouped up <laughs> bunch of kobolds <laughs> indeed and so this book has like a lot of novel kind of encounters and mechanics. And I love the carnival itself, which is kind of, it's like a big set piece where everything starts and there's lots of things to explore. And there are interesting mechanics, even for that, like there are carnival rides that have like specific mechanics. And I think that's just so cool. Like there are specific mechanics for riding the little roller coaster. And it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm into it. I'm looking forward to really digging through the whole book and um i've been thinking about running it for for uh blizzard watch group I, I think that is a fantastic idea and i'm looking forward to i pick up my copy after we're done actually recording i get to go drive down to the shop and go pick up my fancy cover um 
I want to talk about something about this book. Go for it. That I, I've been reading it too, but you know, not as much. But like I said earlier in the pre-show, Liz Liz is kind enough to get it via D and D Beyond, so I get to look at it. And I'm sorry, but I want to play a Herringon so bad, <laughs> so bad. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. Because they're bipedal bunny people, man. Yes, <laughs> I, I've already created one. I already have one in our in our our chat. Uh, or our chat, our D and D Beyond uh, character campaign thing. I already created yeah. one as soon as it was available because I we should play rabbits. Let's play rabbit. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I've actually raised a lot of rabbits in my life, and at mm-hmm. this point, um, well, we lost one a few years back. I remember and doing. We've been, I remember doing art for the memorial for that. Yeah, and we've uh, we've been thinking about getting a new one, but at the same time, we're like we've got the three cats and the dog, and I'm pretty sure our dog would be like, yay. Bunny, it's a candy machine. Because whenever we're walking, <laughs> whenever we're walking the dog, she just runs to wherever she thinks she sees bunny poop to try and eat it. It's a constant. No, stop that. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. But but regardless, just the the hair trigger hair trigger is one of their abilities. You can add your proficiency bonus to your initiative rolls. That is and that brilliant. Is, and and it's that spelled, is hair hair yep. trigger H A R E. Yeah, it's brilliant. Of course uh, it is. Um, lucky footwork, mm-hmm. um, rabbit hop. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I just love these guys. I think they are just amazing. I mean, the fairies are fine too, but these I wanna, guys, I want to play my bunny samurai. I, I yeah. want to play my bunny samurai. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> these, these guys and the guys coming in Strixhaven, uh, the, the whose the name owl, I can't, owl something. Owlin, I think they're Owlin. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the two that I am absolutely down for. For, for those so of I, you that are maybe may listening to this and aren't familiar with like D&D or Strixhaven, which is a Magic the Gathering property, uh, it's essentially the Swolkin, the uh, the little owl folk, but in larger form uh, from like World of Warcraft, if you've seen the Shadowlands and the Bastion. Bastion though. Yeah, and it is absolutely the case that that's cool, and I'm really down for it. The other thing that's really cool is the introduction of the League of Malevolence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the League of Malevolence, this is pure nostalgia candy. Like, straight up. This is just, if you played Dungeons & Dragons when it was having its first big push into public consciousness in the in the like early to mid-80s, they had a toy line. And I, I don't know how to explain the effect that this toy line had on me at the time. Like, because I, I got the toys. My, my mom... My mom and my dad had very different opinions about how the kind of stuff that kids should be exposed to. And my dad was pretty, pretty draconian about me not having things like comics or whatever. Right around the time that my mom got sick of it was when D&D started breaking larger. And so she, she was deliberately getting me stuff, knowing that he would get mad about it and not caring. Um, so I had like the, there's a, a stat block here for Kellick. I had the Kellick toy. <laughs> You know, it's just a war duke. I had the war duke toy. And they're they're kind of like the best part about this is they're encapsulating the characters exactly as they were for those ads. Yeah. For the toys themselves. <laughs> they're not bothering like when War Duke had his last appearance in Dungeons and Dragons, it was during third edition. They wrote up like this mega big backstory involving him in the politics and shifting alliances of the Greyhawk campaign world. This time just likes to hit things with his sword. They actually combat notes. Warduke likes to hit things with his sword. It's as simple as that. That's the combat note. I I, I am Warduke. I've been playing Warduke for the past twenty years. 
I've played War Duke and World of Warcraft. I just didn't know it. <laughs> it's just, it's. I love these guys. I, they are so stock villain. It is, and they are not like super like hard villains. Like you could, this is a reasonable group to put up against like an actual like. I'd say like um well, like only... level five, level six party. I was gonna say yeah, they're CR five. I think CR is not... not is notoriously not accurate. Like yeah, CR is it's... CR is, a, but I'd still looking it's a at ballpark. Them, Looking at them, the only thing about this is the only like thing about Warduke, for example, that I would really feel kind of worried about is the multi-attack because he's got multi-attack. He can make three attacks with his sword in a round. That that can be kind of nasty. That's at that level, three attacks around from one guy. Oh no, that's that's that can be absolutely brutal. Yeah, but almost it's almost like fighting a monk. Yeah, almost or a, but, yeah. or a fighter. You know, action surge is a thing. Yeah, I, I just part, have to. Oh, I ahead. just have to make that comment because uh, Matt is playing a monk in the campaign I'm running right now. And it's just like you put something in front of that monk and it's like smash, 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 gone. Monk, monks, yes. are, it's not even that. Like monks are just not to sidetrack, but like they are like one of the most <laughs> universal utility fighting, like just classes in the game. Like my weekly game that we played in, we killed an arch, uh, an arch demon. Uh, I can never pronounce his name, but it has all sorts of weird consonants in it. Uh, but like, basically, the monk was the rock star of the entire thing because of stunning strike. Like, monks yeah. are just dumb. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I just got stunning strike and I used it, and I was like, "Yeah, that's it." Combat uh, over. That yeah. used to they used, they used to be something in third edition. Monks didn't get that until like level. I want to say it was like. 14 16 something like that like it was it was way late and i can kind of understand why now <laughs> yeah it is it can definitely mess up a day nope. but yeah i'm loving like just all the the feeling of this book is very i, I don't know how to put it it's like it's almost celebrational they're doing a lot it's, of they're doing a lot of stuff that seems fun. to be more fun yeah exactly it's yeah. not it's not necessarily the hard line like temple of elemental evil redo or um, Curse of the Dragon Queen redo or anything like that, uh, or what is it? The the Red Mage, Maze of the Red Mage, or whatever. Um, it's nothing like those. Like they're just having fun with stuff, and I think that's when the game shines the most. Like stuff like this. I, it definitely is. It's something that I feel like has a lot of appeal. Um, and I'm I'm super excited to get to mess around with it. Um, I really, the idea of playing a fairy in this game is hilarious to me because they are tiny. Literally, mm -hmm. they are tiny. They mm -hmm. are size mm -hmm. tiny. Like you know, they could ride on another person's shoulder. Uh, it is just really cool. I find it quite amusing. So yeah, um, I, I think we're. This is. It is going to be. I have been. I've been very deliberately not reading the adventure part of this. Yeah, and I plan on not reading the adventure part either because you know Liz is talking about running it. Um, so I've basically just been doing stuff like zipping through the character stuff, looking at the races looking at, you know, evil factions that are probably in the game, but I don't know anything about it. And it's not like the second they, if they ever show up in the game, I'll know who they are. You know, I'll, I'll be like, my character would be like, I have no idea who these people are. And I'd be like, I had your toy, man. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see more of this kind of thing. Yeah. Now that wasn't the only new thing that released for D and D, or well, I guess it's the first release. But like, there was the the celebration yesterday, right? Or was it the day before? Yep, it, uh, it was yesterday, I believe. Isn't it ongoing? It's still going on. Yeah, as we're recording this, it should still be happening. So I, I'm going to turn to Liz too because I was on an airplane. So what has I? Been... I got nothing. 
I yeah. got nothing. Matt, have you seen anything of note from there? Um, nothing. Fizzbin's got a book, but what didn't reveal anything new that I could see. Yeah. The the Fizzbin's Dragery Dragon Treasury. I it didn't look like it was. They were just they were just hyping it. It didn't feel like. And here's a new thing you didn't know about. It just feels like they're gonna hype this. And I'm I'm totally down with them hyping it. I have no problem with that. Sure. But that's that's it didn't. There were some cool games like there was a, a cool High Rollers D and D uh, and outside Xbox. The Oxventure D and D groups had a crossover where players from both groups were playing their characters, and it was run by the DM from one of them, and the DM from the other one got to play in it. That was cool. A lot of the games have been cool, but they haven't really nothing like the the last the D and D live event. You new stuff came out. This doesn't feel like anything new came out, and I don't know why, but maybe because the books are done. I think it's because like, the books might be done because, like, we already know what's coming, right? Like, we have yeah, like which lights out? Which which lights out? Strixhaven's out next. No, uh, Fizzbins is. Oh yeah, okay, last one. No, have they changed? We it? have two books coming. We have two books coming next month. Oh, they're doing both because originally it was yeah. Originally, I, Strixhaven was pushed out at the end of the year. Let me double check. So they pushed it. They must have pushed it up. It must have been done because originally they were announcing that it wasn't going to be available until like November, December. I have them both down for October. Let me double check. Y'all keep talking. <laughs> well, at any rate, like, the, but that's what we know about D and D. There was also something else that's not D and D related, but you know, in terms of the D and D celebration, it didn't really drop a lot of new information. Yeah. That would be what there I would are. Say. They are playing a lot of one shot games, so that's cool. Yeah, but in terms of like non Gen Con was like the last week. Um, again, it, Gen Con being Gen Con. Uh, nothing tremendously surprising came out of it, but I mean, there were a few new things like Monty cook games is doing a, a oh, five module. Yeah. They do. Well, it's not even a module. It's like some kind of like, it's kind of like a planescape inspired thing they're doing. Yeah. So there, it's the, it's basically destiny, but on like on tabletop because it's a interdimensional moon that goes from plane to plane. Um, it's a very cool concept, but it, like I, I was reading about it and it seemed very much basically like the whole thing of destiny and the traveler. So, but I'm that kinda, wizard came from the moon more or less. Right. Um, moon's haunted. Well, the moon's kind of hanging over, uh, over the earth a little bit closer than normal. And well, the lights here. Okay. I guess that's a thing. Uh, but I'm actually here for it. I think it's going to be, I think it's cool. I'm actually kind of all like, I like the planes stuff. I think it is very, very interesting. And I wish there was more done with it. And I think Matt and I talked about this on a lore watch like four or five months ago, God, um, where we talked about how we would have liked to have seen more done with uh, Planescape. And it seems like this might be a good like test the waters, right? Like if this yeah, does I, well, maybe we'll get more. I feel like you can't really complain with all the times I've thrown you under the plane of existence then. I don't. you supposedly like it so much. <laughs> I, me, the player, doesn't complain. The character no, no. Ha- in character complains. But yeah, um, also... Paizo, while they are having problems, um, I'm just going to address those problems real fast. Uh, Jessica Price, um, she's a pretty well-known game developer. She worked mm-hmm. for uh, ArenaNet for a while before there was a problem there. Um, she basically wrote a, a Twitter thread and backed it up with some receipts talking about various Paizo executives who were not treating their workers very well. Um, there was sexual harassment stuff. There was just plain exploitation stuff. There was like one story she told about how they wouldn't clean the carpets in their office 
and so the the, the people working there like were getting sick yeah. and they finally they brought in like their own vacuum from home to try and clean it up and it destroyed their vacuum because it hadn't been cleaned in like three years so they had to get like they tried to get a shop vac in and they couldn't get anyone to pay for it that story to me was kind of endemic of like a really bad executive mindset where where it was like you know this has to get done and you're not doing it yes it's expensive but we can't work in this it's it's like you cannot work in pig pen situations it's got to be cleaned um so that's happening and there's been some some people who are involved have responded and those responses are you know still going back and forth uh, i i recommend you go look at the situation up because i don't feel like i can encapsulate it properly but it is not unfamiliar to any of us who are familiar with stuff that's going on in the computer game industry because when you cut right down to it, the pen and paper game industry is like the computer industry, except there's only a couple of big hitters. Mm-hmm. And Paizo is a small fish by anybody's definition of a company, mm-hmm. but a big fish in this industry. Uh, because this industry only has one real corporation working in it. And that corporation is Hasbro. And Hasbro kind of got into it just because they wanted to own the, the U.S. rights to Pokemon. That is the reason that Hasbro owns Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, more um, or less. Is, now, D&D has become big. Hasbro is definitely pushing it. They're like, oh, wow, okay, we can make money on this now? Great. But nevertheless, that is the reason we have a big corporation like Hasbro involved in it at all. And so when a company like this, the size of Paizo has these problems, it is felt throughout the industry. Um, everybody, and th- this is not to say that Wizards doesn't have its own problems or that other companies don't have their own problems. I'm absolutely not saying that. I'm just saying you're going to see it and it, it needs to be dealt with. Uh, you can't, which you can't have the situation where people can't live. So, which is, which is a good, good thing for course correction to start happening, especially for Paizo. There was actually an, a news beat I was going to bring up. I have a whole slew of things that I was going to run through. I could stop and talk about if, um, But I think this month, Paizo, uh, amidst all of that, also announced the uh, Pathfinder and Starfinder Infinite. As well. I was literally just going to mention that. <laughs> Go for it. That's, right, that's where it was going. No, no, it's just, it is, I don't know if you guys know that one of the things that, that Wizards has done, that would, they've got their D&D Next thing and their D&D like they have, they have the ability. You can go out and you can write your own module. They have an open license, and, basically. Yeah, they have an open license, and you can write your own module, and you can put it up, and you can put, you know, you can label it as com- compatible with their product. You can say that this is a module for Dungeons and Dragons for the it's for the fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons. If you don't want to do that, you can still put out products, but you can't put use their branding. You can't say this is a D&D module. Mm-hmm. You have to say stuff like this is for the 5th edition of the world's greatest role-playing game. Most people do that to get around, you know, dealing with 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 wizards, but you can do it. Paizo is basically just put out a much more permissive license. There's that even le- very it similar even to what lets they do you for powered by the apocalypse. Like, yeah. It's just very open. It's it's very open and it allows you to use our art assets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As long as you abide by the very the relatively few restrictions in that license, you can use art assets from various. You know, one of the de- developers on uh, from Paizo, Logan Bonner, who's currently like I think he's currently the developer on the Pathfinder Second Edition. He posted a thing to his Twitter saying, "Well, I mean, hey." If you're do if you're thinking about doing it, I would be weird if you didn't happen to have access to all these free downloads we have mm-hmm. of our art assets. He just just put them out there, like they're not even trying to hide this. This is so. This is a good program. 
even if you're having, you know, issues with Paizo because of the, and they're straight up, there are terrible things that are being alleged and they need to be dealt with. It's still an amazing product. It's an amazing program for people who want to make modules. And not because the, and not just modules, but like individual stuff as well. Like one of the things yeah. they have a partnership going on with one bookshelf. Um, and one bookshelf is the company that owns drive through RPG, drive through cards, astral tabletop, basically the premier digital table space for a lot of the stuff. They also host the DMs guild. Um, so like any of the content that you see that's like set aside specifically for like D and D classes, like that's where Matt Mercer published the gunslinger content originally was through the DMs guild and drive through RPG. Paizo's partnering up with them to make sure that like you want to create a class and release just a class packet. Congratulations. You can do that now. And we're working with these digital distributors to make it so that you can just upload it and you want to make some bucks off of it. Go ahead. You want to, you want to sell it through there. Go right ahead. We're just making sure that it's all in one place that everything passes muster and you can make, take the stuff that you've come up with that you've custom built or homebrewed in your game and share it with the rest of the players out there because you know you're going to love it. And I think that is absolutely phenomenal. That's great, because I, I don't give Paizo enough credit a lot of the time when they come to, like, opening up their game, and now it seems like they're just like, yep, yeah, here we go. Go ahead and do it. Yeah, it is It is a pretty it's a pretty broad program. Uh, for a company the size of, of Paizo, it's a, it's a huge step forward. I'm, I'm personally super excited about it. But yeah. Making, um, making any game more accessible to players, that's a big win for a small company because the more people you can get into playing it, the more people are going to be interested in buying the books. And I think that's been one of the biggest wins of D and D beyond is that it makes it really easy to play. And I think, I think these digital tools have really expanded the audience. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And that's the other thing that I forgot to mention, too, is those digital distributors link in with things like Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds. So, like, if you purchase, like, I'll just keep using the Gunslinger as the example. If you purchase the Gunslinger, you can make it available everywhere. Like, you can just unlock it and have it as part of your digital account where you go to play Roll20, you can make it available. To uh, Fantasy Grounds, you can make it available. Like, it's, there's a lot of cross-pollinization going on, and it is very, very you want to talk any more about Paizo, guys? No, I think we're good. I think right. that pretty much covers it. There are some other things that I, the major topic, I shouldn't say major topic, some little news notes that I thought were interesting. Um, I'm really into Power Rangers, and there's a tabletop game out there called Heroes of the Grid. Um, it is a board game that has miniatures, uh, and it is a very fun game if you haven't played it, where you are essentially literally playing as Power Rangers and fighting off monsters just like you would in episodic content, including summoning Megazords and going to battle with. Um, they just released something that I thought was really fun, and I just wanted to mention real quick. If you've ever watched the original one when you were younger and you remember Bulk and Skull, uh, those characters are now Power Rangers with their own powers and own suits and everything else, and they just released miniatures for them. And I just thought it was funny to note that Bulk and Skull finally have their day in the sun. Uh, and it's based off of the Boom Comics uh, run where they were were Power Rangers on an alternate use uh, alternate universe timeline. Uh, so I thought that was actually very very fun. And they're also doing a Santa uh, versus Heximus expansion uh, specifically for this game as well for the upcoming holiday season. Um, I'm sure. Probably should also if we're going to talk about that, we should talk about the fact that there's a Transformers uh, RPG coming out. Yes, I was going to bring that up as well. Please go ahead though. No, there's a Transformers RPG yeah. coming out. Yeah, That's you- it. 
and th- there used to be one way back in the day, and I'm sure Matt remembers it. Um, but there used to be one based on the D6 system, and now they're just they're updating it for a modern audience. So if you ever wanted to play Optimus Prime or Ultra Magnus or create your own original character transformer like we all used to do back in the day because we're super into it, you'll have the opportunity to do just that. Um, speaking of mechas, there is a, a Godzilla slash mecha kaiju battle style game that is going up on uh, Kickstarter uh, called Mecha and Monsters Evolved. Uh, that is something to look out for in case you are interested in it. It is the second edition of uh, Mecha and Monsters. There was a, I believe they called it the Tiny D6 line of Tiny Frontiers Mecha and Monsters. So if you like kaiju battles, might be up your alley. Um, there is a Blade Runner role-playing game from Free League Publishing coming out. Um, that is not a whole lot of details on it, but it is based off of the 1982 film um, and has some ties to Blade Runner 2049, which just released within the last few years. I don't remember. Time is weird, folks. Um, but it is going to be published in licensing with Alcon, um, and it is scheduled for sometime in 2022. But I'm actually very interested in that because I like Blade Runner. I like that concept and I'm interested to see what a role playing game does with it. That isn't strictly uh, cyberpunk uh, like we know it, like cyberpunk red and not strictly something like shadow. Um, Vampire the Masquerade has another book coming out. The second Inquisition source book. It is available for pre-order. So if you are interested in that, uh, that is coming out and it is going to be basically a whole thing with the secret church versus versus the, uh, the masquerade. Um, which is an old storyline that was kind of like a, a real thin book back in like the 90s. Um, but it's expected to hit store shelves in January. Uh, and so if you are interested in that particular scheme, there's something new as well. And the last thing that I wanted to mention uh, is Games Workshop has been in the news a lot lately. Um, not necessarily for good things, but also not necessarily for bad things. It's a weird place. We talk about luxury games. Uh, tabletop wargaming is definitely probably higher up on the this is a luxury than role-playing games are. Um, oh, yeah, because, you know, the, the sheer volume of miniatures you have to buy is quite extensive. Yeah, but in on the smaller front, they did announce one of my favorite one of my favorite games is Blood Bowl. It's essentially fantasy rugby. I won't call it football because it's not, um, but it's fantasy rugby and your team never gets above 16 models. Um, they've been slowly releasing new teams to sort of flush it out because a lot of their old licenses were, well, mildly racist. Um, so there's no more fantasy Egyptian stereotypes. Uh, there's a whole different race of, of undead skeleton things now. Uh, there's no more uh, Kislev, which used to be their uh, very stereotypical like Eastern European circus performers. Um, they've gone away from that stereotype very smartly. So years and years and years ago, but they are releasing new ones and they just released the new corn blood bowl team, uh, which if you are out there and you know what that is more blood for the blood God. Uh, so very exciting there. And they're starting to release, uh, bonuses and stuff to try to entice whales, uh, as Matt loves to point, or I shouldn't say loves to point out, but has pointed out, um, where if you spend a certain amount, you get a free model, uh, exclusive model from the web store. Uh, people have been reacting very poorly to that and feeling like, and this is a weird thing and I want to get your guys takes on it. So the concept is if somebody spends $240 in the web store, they get this free exclusive model that would normally sell for like 65 bucks. And people are feeling like I've seen a lot of like mixed stuff out there. Like, Oh, I have to pay $240. Uh, and then the other side is, but it's an optional thing. That's just like, if you spend this much, you get a bonus. 
Do you think things like that are bad for companies to do? Do you think that they should avoid that? Or do you think people just don't understand the con- uh, free bonus with your purchase of X amount? I, I think that basically people forget that companies have to, especially in this market, companies have to distinguish themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't have a choice. Um, unfortunately, that does kind of mean from time to time that you end up with, like I said, I talked before about the Invisible Sun thing with the giant box. Uh, that was not for me. That was not for a lot of people, mm-hmm. but for the people who could afford it, it was this really cool collectible thing. I mean, there's a reason that like, you know, there's the mass effect, like ultimate bundle with like a bust of shepherd's head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who needs a, I don't need a bust of shepherd's head. Nobody needs a bust of shepherd's head, but having it, you know, for the people who can afford it, it means that the company makes more money, which unfortunately that's a thing that companies have to do again in the, in, in the, the TTRPG field. And in, in fields that are related to it, like Games Workshop straddles the line. They do. They're kinda, they kind of they sell role-playing game stuff. They sell wargaming stuff. And wargaming in particular, you've got to distinguish yourself. There's just the there's market's one. Flooded. The market's yeah. absolutely flooded. Like Games Workshop is definitely the biggest, like probably yeah. name on the market. But you have uh, Corvus Belly doing Infinity. You have Mantic Games publishing an alternate version of every single game that Games Workshop produces. Uh, there, the market is ab- uh, one page rules. One page rules doesn't have a physical line. They produce everything in 3D. They produce a set of rules and then let you 3D print your entire army. But it is all loosely based off of Games Workshop IPs uh, because it's what's recognizable to people. And it's, you have the to privateer press. Yourself. Privateer press. Yeah. Yep, they're another one between uh, their own kaiju battle game, um, which I absolutely love, but I can't think of the name because my brain's on fire and I'm also not unleashed. Unleashed is different. Unleashed is uh, role playing. Oh, okay. I know. Okay. All right. Unleashed and Iron Kingdoms is their role playing that does have miniatures and comes with maps for grid work. The other one is it's protectors versus destroyers, and it is ostensibly just mecha versus kaiju. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, and I feel so bad now. And I know one of my friends who listens to this podcast is going to make fun of me later, so I see you. Um, but like the market is absolutely flooded, and it's a lot of very similar ideas. So you have to distinguish yourself and make yourself enticing for those people to spend your money there. Like it's, you don't have a choice and yeah. So Liz, do you have an opinion on any of that? (laughs) I don't, I'm not a fan of it, but I think it's just, you know, this is just a fact of life because companies do need to make money and it's even more important for these small companies. Mm -hmm. So encouraging people to spend more by offering cool benefits. Uh, I mean, that it makes a lot of sense. And we do see it all through, you know, everywhere. I mean, in the gaming industry, video games are always producing collector's editions mm-hmm. and like limited edition things and like art and figurines and things that you can only get if you get them at one particular time. So I think things like this are very common and you are targeting these whales who spend a lot of money. Also, it's so, Monster Apocalypse, by the way. Monster Apocalypse, thank you. That's the name I couldn't remember. Yep. No, I, I, I think Liz is absolutely hitting it here. I, I, think, I don't think it's... I, I'm not going to say it's great for any of these hobbies, but at the same time, what do you expect? Yeah. And, and the other thing I think yeah. is people need to realize that not everything is for them, too. It, like, it's... Nothing means you have to, to get the high-end package. I mean, if you want it and you can't afford it, I understand that. But also, you might not be the target market, right? Yeah, so. maybe. I just think in general, I mean, we're, we're going to see more of this kind of stuff 
going forward because we've just got done in the pre-show relating all the supply chain issues and all the issues that are making publishing so much more expensive. Um, I think you're going to see a lot more of companies doing what the company you were just talking about. We're releasing everything online and letting you 3d print your own minis. Oh yeah. That that's absolutely the future of wargaming because people just getting all of this stuff has always been the big expense and it's about to go way the heck up. Yeah. And I think in the future, we'll probably do an episode that talks a little bit more about it because I, I've gotten personally a ton of questions from a lot of our listeners regarding the two like 3d printing and tabletop gaming, both from a D and D standpoint and a wargaming standpoint. So I, we will get to that at some, at some near future. So, but I think that's all the topics I had. Was there anything else that happened this week that you guys want to, to bring up before we start breaking into some of the questions? We're- so with everybody's silence, uh, any other major topics, I'm going to take it as a no. Uh, I had one, but oh, I don't do. Think- well, I do, but I'm not sure if it necessarily needs to go because we do actually we're we're going. We have, about we have a good number left. of questions, yeah. But basically, I've been looking at like the past, I'd say the past five years. Um, we're seeing like a rise in licensed uh, tabletop games coming to computer games. Yes, like, we are between the return of the Baldur's Gate series. Um, Pathfinder's had two books um, turned into games at this point. Um, Warhammer's all uh, over the place with that. War, yeah, Warhammer's everywhere. Um, I think we're going to see... Like, there was that unfortunate um, Dark Alliance game that came out. Uh, yeah. yeah. It had so much potential. Yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't very good. But we're also seeing like a lot of other games that are essentially... I don't want to say rip-offs, but they're inspired by... Heavily this inspired kind of game. by, yeah. Um, the ones that come to mind to me are the Pillars of Eternity games that came mm-hmm. out. Uh, Tyranny... There's a fair amount of this stuff happening. I mean, we're going to get like a, and it, and it goes both ways. There was a, a fallout uh, TTRPG was released a couple years back. Yeah. Um, there was. Yeah. So I, I, I don't feel like we've got time to talk about this in detail, but I did want to bring it up so that maybe the next time we'll, we'll have it in, in mind. I've been playing, you know, Pathfinder. In fact, right now I'm streaming Pathfinder as we're doing this because I, I, I don't know if you guys have this problem. And I think it's the same problem I have with D and D beyond. I love making characters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I will, I will sit in the character creator for days. I, I pay a yearly subscription to D and D beyond just so I can make infinite characters. Yeah. And I, I, Liz, I, I, do you do this? Do you ever just sit down and make characters for no reason? Uh, I don't usually, but I, I understand the appeal because there are so many cool options and you just want to play around with what you can create and come up with ideas. I have I have more character ideas in my head than I ever actually create, but you just kind of, there are so many options and combinations, particularly when you get into new books, which all of them have new races and sometimes mm-hmm. new class options and subclasses. So... And new Unearthed Arcana that comes out really regularly. And so you're always like, oh, how can I combine this with old stuff? And what new cool things can I make? And yeah, I, it's I remember, really fun. Yeah. Like, I'm going to just show this real fast. You guys can't see it because, you know, you're not watching the stream. But I want to show people this because it is hilarious. This is the class options for King for uh, Wrath of the Righteous. You are reading this correctly. There are this many classes. <laughs> there are, I think there's something like like 24 just before you even get to like the special classes that you can get later the prestige classes there's something like 24 classes each which has like five or six subclasses you can pick if you want to like 
It is nuts. I have spent hours just making characters starting the game and then immediately quitting out of it because I don't intend to play that character. I just wanted to make one. Yeah, it makes sense. And this is the it has the one thing that I don't get in D and D Beyond, which I love, and I wish D and D Beyond would add. It has a you know little icon of yourself that you can import. Well, you can import an icon in D and D Beyond. It's just easier here. But you see, you can see so you can import these various character sketches. I've I've imported them. But when you make your character, you you make a three D icon, obviously, because that's going to be your character when you're playing the game. And you can pick what they look like. You can do their hair and their you know, their build and their skin color and all that stuff. I wish D&D Beyond had this. Like, if they, even if you didn't use it for anything, it just was there in the corner and you could have it. I Oh, God, I would never stop. Like, imagine if D&D Beyond and, like, oh, what are their names? The the minis company where you can... Hero Forge? Thank you. Imagine if D&D Beyond and Hero Forge did a thing where, as you made your character, your little Hero Forge mini got, got generated in the corner. Like, you could... Like do do that too, and then you'd have the file that you could download and and print of your your character. You could make their mini while you made the character. I'd never get out of D and D Beyond again. Yeah, no, I could totally see you do. I could totally one hundred percent see you never leaving your house again because you would just sit there be making characters. I don't leave my house much as it is. Yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a deadly disease out there. I don't want to be out there. But yeah, if this if this was happening, I'd I'd literally be like, you know, well, it was good to know you while I did. Anyway, into my cage I go. Um, but yeah, I, I think we can talk about that some other time. I just wanted to, I just really wanted to say that the character generation stuff really gets me. That's totally fair. But I think we're going to start breaking into some questions that we received from you, our wonderful listeners. Uh, So if you do have questions for this podcast or, in fact, any of our podcasts, please be sure to send them into podcast at blizzardwatch.com or be sure to hit us up in one of our Discord channels. We have one set aside specifically for our Patreon supporters to ask us uh, any question that they want. Uh, maybe it's not for the show. I've answered several questions that don't actually fit on a show, but people just have questions. We do that too. Uh, but just specify what show it's for, uh, when you do let it ask us those questions. And if you can't support us on Patreon and you don't like doing the whole email thing, uh, the Q questions, uh, channel on our discord. Well, we also look there for podcast questions. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and ask if Liz would be so kind as to read our first question. Asking me to do things so demanding. I am. Uh... Okay, I'm going to kind of jump into the middle of this one. What is the most brutal RPG you've played? Three outstanding games in the rough category are Paranoia, the game where your characters die so fast you get six clones of each one. Twilight 2000, a great and unforgiving game about World War III with a limited nuclear exchange to wreck the world. And the best, Call of Cthulhu, old school, old gods, where it seems to be a race between your mind and body to see which gives out first. Chaosium just did a Kickstarter to reprint the second edition box set. And that's a question from Easy Target Gamer Nerd. I'm going to say straight up, calling calling that an addiction was not wrong. Yeah. Second addiction, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, All right, little fun aside story. The very first DM I ever had for D&D in a game as like a reasonably fully formed, like I shouldn't even say fully formed, but mentally formed like adult uh, was Dan Harms, who was a writer for Chaosium and particularly Call of Cthulhu. And uh, yeah, he uh, he was very good at weaving uh, all sorts of stuff that would mess with your your head. So Dan, if you're listening, I still have nightmares about some of the stuff you had us go through in those tabletop games, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> but yeah, what do, you, what do you guys think were the most brutal ones? 
I would certainly say the worst one that I have personally played is Call of Cthulhu because it is, there are a million ways to lose and like no way to win just because your character is like every time you encounter some weird old god stuff that's creepy and you don't know what it is, you have like this chance to gain like some insanity. And also it's not really designed to be a combat game. Combat is very difficult it's very easy to get hurt Mm -hmm. and uh there aren't many ways it takes a lot of time to recover and of course so you can get physically hurt very easily you can get mentally hurt whenever you encounter like a major story element about the old ones in the world and it's just real easy to lose my first character in the game actually the first game I played, my character died before I had a chance to go mad, but I was working pretty hard on both of those. And the other thing is if you make a character that has a high intelligence, the more intelligent you are, the more likely you are to go mad. Because when you see crazy old god stuff, you're more likely to understand what's going on and be really freaked out by it. Yeah, that, that I mean... Call of Cthulhu is a brutal game for a very good reason. Um, there's one that I know of, and I'm conf- I don't know if you guys have, have heard of it or played it. Have you either of you played Ten Candles? Oh yeah, I've played Ten Candles once. That's the storytelling game with literally with Ten Candles involved in it. Yeah. So it, basically, the concept behind Ten Candles is it's a horror story tabletop game that essentially you are playing as a survivor in a post-apocalyptic sunless world living out your last few hours of that character's Ooh. lives. It's brutal because you know you are going to die. It is it is a game about what happens between essentially like the survivors, right? And you know that there's a time limit and it's set up for more one shot than it is for um than it is anything to do with uh, long-term campaigns, but it is just an absolutely brutal soul-crushing game because no matter what you do, no matter what progress you make or what stories you you tell, it ultimately will end in the character's death. There is no way outside. Um, the other one that I know that I thought was always hilarious was Dungeon Crawl Classics <laughs> uh, because it basically was a harder version of D&D and just literally your whole point was to die. So... Matt, what about you? Most brutal. Um, honestly, people talk a lot about Call of Cthulhu, and I, I'm not disputing it. It absolutely has some some utterly brutal things in it. But another game Chaosium put out that I think is more existentially terrifying was this, the Elric slash Stormbringer run, line. First off, because it's set in the novels and, and short stories written by Michael Moorcock for his Eternal Champion stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elric and so forth and all that. And I don't know if you know this, but the end of the Elric stories, the sword kills Elric and destroys the entire world. Like you are playing in a doomed world where everything is going to end Mm -hmm. in your lifetime. And you might not even know why it happened. Like for most people in that world, it just happens one day. They're going about their lives doing whatever. And then everything ends and they all die. And there's no hope. There's no way out of this. It's going to happen. Um, there's a there's a line from the sword uh, in the story where, where Morcock ended the uh, the whole series, where the sword ki- after the sword kills Elric says you know farewell friend I was a thousand times more evil than thou, um, and El- Elric to this point has done some evil things, and that's like playing that game 
uh, when it was when it was run by a good DM, I remember always thinking, you know, he really managed to suffuse the the hopelessness of it all into like, yes, you won this fight, yes, you beat the people who were trying to do something to you, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. I mean, sorry to quote Lincoln Park at you, but nevertheless, it was one of those things where, sure, paranoia is is a game where you get killed a lot. Call of Cthulhu is a game where you go mad, but Elric is a game where you win and it avails you nothing. And like the best modules for it that I ever saw and played through, one's called Rogue Mistress. Yes, you join you join forces with this this really kick-ass lady pirate, and yes, you raid these this dimensional lair to try and save her sister from this demon, but it costs her life and the sh- ship she was on gets destroyed and her whole crew gets messed up. Yeah, that that Lord of Chaos gets destroyed too, but you know, you kind of left with ashes in your mouth at the end of it. And it's, that's the kind of thing that I always thought was like, was worse. Like, do you remember guys remember cult? Yeah. The game cult. Yep. Cult, cult took horror role playing into a completely different direction where it wasn't about you going insane. Like I, I've, quite frankly, I've always kind of been leery of sanity mechanics because they have nothing to do with actual mental illness. And whenever they try to, it just, it's just a mess. But cult, I liked it because you got, the problem wasn't that you went mad or anything. The problem was, is that now that you knew the way the world worked, you couldn't fit in with people who didn't, and that was like you, you're you're getting you're getting increasingly isolated. And then there's Gamma World. If you've ever played original Gamma World or any of the remakes of Gamma World that have come out over the years, you die all the time. Yeah. Gamma World is a game oh, where, brutal. yeah, Gamma World is a game where take Dungeons and Dragons, then take out every healing spell and resurrection <laughs> spell that you can, and most of the healing items might backfire because they're from like the the age before the destruction of society and you don't even understand them you have no idea what this device does you think it might heal you sort of thing so gamma world people die like just constantly um and then there's dark sun which for a DD setting (laughs) dark sun was astonishingly brutal yeah and it was made to be like it was yeah here's all the disadvantages you could ever possibly have in a game go forth and the, the the dark sun was so bad that they they borrowed the concept of, from pa- from paranoia of having a bunch of different characters. They weren't clones. You actually were supposed to set up a tree of relationships between all these characters you were going to make. Yep. So you'd start off the game with like five characters, and there was like you'd come up with why these characters knew each other. And so then you would have to like one dies. Well, why does the other one take up the mantle or whatever the case is? Like it was it was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean there's lots more. There was Warhammer Fantasy Role Playing. Um there's a there's a game that I've hesitated to mention so far on this podcast because I haven't played it. I've simply read it and regretted it immediately. Mm-hmm. Um I recently saw a Reddit thread about this though, so I'm gonna mention it. Joe, I know, has heard of it. Liz, have you heard of Fatal? No. Okay. We don't have time for me to go into why <laughs> Fatal is awful. But I will tell you that the t- original title of Fatal was an acronym. And it was an acronym of Fantasy Adventures to Adult Lechery. Yep. <laughs> this will sum up Fatal for you, I think, very effectively. There is a complicated series of dice rolls necessary to generate the length and girth of your penis if you are playing a male character. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it gets okay. way worse than that. And the thing was, he wasn't marketing it as a sex game. This was basically a, a really bad AD&D clone. It was, it reminds me of a lot of, t- like, 
in the 70s and 80s when there was a lot of like quote unquote adult animation for the sake of like trying to be edgy and make animation more adult oriented and it just swung too far like f- that's what fatal kind of did it was it was not good it was no it was it, mm. fatal is the game where they just snigger at you yep for daring to play it it's just straight up but that game i read up a, a, a twitter i mean not twitter a, a reddit thread about running the game it took them four and a half hours to get through the astonishingly complex and horribly disgusting character creation process which is racist and misogynist oh, yeah. and homophobic yep. all at once yep four and a half hours for them to make their characters and get out into the world they died in five minutes yep because combat and fatal you die almost instantly if something hits you you die yep i mean and sure that's kind of realistic if i cleave you in half with a great sword you're going to die yeah it, it, it's not like in D where i can hit you with the great sword six times because hit points are a nebulous construction they don't actually mean the physical body you have but nevertheless four and a half hours of of rampant horror just to get your character made dead in like five minutes yeah good so, times good uh, times all right well normally i would ask matt in this case to read the other one but i'll i'll give him the option i don't know how his eyes are doing um and i think uh, we're gonna skip the wheel of time one reading isn't that yeah. bad but i need to open it give me a sec <laughs> i'm not used to actually having the email open <laughs> and uh theraval it's not that we want to skip the uh the wheel of time thing it's probably just going to be a longer discussion at some point well, plus it's not I- really a role-playing question yeah well, we do more than role-playing here. Tavern Watch is sort of the catch-all. I right. kind of like um, to focus on, you know, the role-playing stuff. Sure. So if you Alrighty. want to... Go ahead. So whenever do, you're do, ready. Do, 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 do. Uh, so that was the first one. Second one is the Theraball thing. So, yeah. Um, what would a DM do differently if a party had flight? And this is from Memonith, by the way. Uh, what would the DM do differently if a party had flight, brooms, carpets, wings, uh, versus normal land battles? That is a really good question, and I think it's something that a lot of DMs don't think about uh, until it becomes a thing they have to think. The first time you run into it, at least in my opinion, it's going to be a struggle, depending on the encounter, Um, especially if you have a whole lot of ground-based, melee-based combatants. It can be difficult. Um, I don't know how Matt first dealt with it, but I know when I first dealt with it, it was one of those epiphany moments where I remember if these characters that they're fighting are ostensibly have access to basic adventurers packs or things like that. They have ranged weaponry. They can throw things. If they're spellcasters, it doesn't care if they're flying or not most of the, um, so it's one of those things where it forced me to start thinking about what would the character or the, the thing that they're fighting do to deal with it? Because in those particular tabletop settings, most of the encounters you're fighting something that's not used to being at the bottom of the food chain, so it's probably hunted or dealt with things that have flown before. How would it go about dealing? Um, and then also trying to factor in speed. Like a flying carpet is not very fast. So they're probably not going to do very much dive bombing runs or, or hit and runs or anything like that. Uh, versus, you know, something that has like the magical flight ability where they can do like 90 feet around. But it's just kind of trying to figure out what do you have at your disposal to sort of deal with it. And also realize that at the end of the day, if you're running a game, you can just make your people fly. That's that's an option. Oh, you have a flying carpet. Well, so do I. And then you just fly up into the air. Like, you can do whatever you want if you are the DM running a game. And not to, like, make it go to your head or anything like that, but just understand that that means you have an infinite number 
of possibilities that you can pull to deal with any situation to make it interesting for your your characters that the, the the player characters in their encounters you are not just limited to what you've written on that piece of paper or what the book tells you you have to do you can do anything you want what do you guys think I'm, i think um that's that's a fair point if if you're dealing with a party that has a ton of flying stuff i mean you're the one that let them <laughs> get get most of that i mean the, the flying carpets and brooms and so forth don't just happen um <clears throat> one of the oh. things i think the go ahead one thing to keep in mind is that you have uh, the fly spell, which characters can just pick up when they're at the right level. You yep. have uh, one of the things in Wild Beyond the Witchlight is fairies have a default flying speed. It's not really fast, but they can fly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Eric and uh, of course well. you, you get uh, druids. You know, they can at a certain level, they can shape shift into things that can fly. So some of this is baked in, kind of depending on what kind of characters you have in the campaign. And oh, you're yeah. going to always have to think about it at least a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I honestly don't think there's there's a difference between everybody in the party can fly versus this character has a fly speed. But when I when I deal with it, generally one of the first things I think about is where are they fighting? Because um, let's point out one of the most powerful flying creatures in any Dungeons and Dragons game is a dragon. Yep. Dragons can usually fly really fast too. They 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 usually have move speeds up in the like a flying like 120. So they can they can swoop through an area, breathe on everybody, and then keep on going. And there's almost nothing you get to do about it. Which is why, even though it sounds like a crazy idea, most people want to fight the dragon in its lair because it can't fly around in there as much because it's a big lair. It's not mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. world. It can't do its flyby. Think about that when dealing with your players. If you're in, if you're currently having a fight inside of a small room or in a corridor or something flight's not going to do you a lot of good and i'm not saying you should make you know okay my 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 party has people who can fly i'm going to make it so it's everything is in twisting tunnels all the time no because here's the other secret sometimes it's cool to let them do the cool things they can do even if it makes these encounters less punishing for them that's part of the idea right like that's part of the the idea like absolutely we've had moments in like the game that i play weekly uh where we've trivialized like we went to go fight in a, an ancient black dragon belladrath and one of the things that black dragons can do at will is fear you so we had a hero's feast we did a hero's feast the night before because it made us immune to fear like you letting players plan and feel like they've got the upper hand on the battle is definitely something you can do as well and should also embrace uh, periodically you don't have to to always dash their hopes or be the the super villain, right? You don't always yeah. have to be the one on top. Like, and one of the things about flight in particular is, if you you know sometimes you're going to want to design you know encounters that you that take that into account, but that lets them use it and do cool things. That's that's perfectly acceptable. They don't have to get the steamroll your fight, but they can feel like yeah, the fact that we were all flying was really cool. It was this epic aerial battle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can just let them straight up. Oh, there's a trench of lava, huh? Well, everyone get on the carpet. Whoop, whoop. that's fine they have the carpet let them use it or you know liz points out the fly spell let the you know hey the sorcerer can be like i can cast fly on everybody here yeah all right bing 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 yeah let's go or i mean the one the last one of the last games that i ran i think it might have been the last session that i ran of otherworld when we did the 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 D podcast for the site i did the skills challenge and flight would have completely trivialized that instead of just letting it completely trivialize it though I let it have an effect on everything else that happened. So it was Andrew whose character just popped into flight form 
and was like, well, can I just call things out and give people advantage? And I was like, that's a really good idea. So I let him do that. And so like when Liz is sitting there riding down the side of a ziggurat that's exploding and skeletal hands are coming out and is like using her blades to knock things away and Andrew's calling point, she's getting advantage on those checks because it was a cool thing to do. It was a cool in the moment thing. And I completely forgot his character could just fly at will, right? Which I shouldn't because he's a freaking genie, but whatever. Um, yeah, and it's like when the three things to keep in mind is first off, you know, what level of opposition are they trying to use this ability on? If they are like going up into a fight with the big bad of the campaign who has been their enemy for years, he probably has a fairly good idea of what they can do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's it's not bad to have like he's he's planned to counter as much of that as possible. That's where layer actions can be really handy. Um, don't forget layer actions. Oh God! Please don't playing, forget layer actions. If you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, layer actions are a big deal. They allow you to put like a singular enemy up against a whole party, and it's not just the party wailing on the singular enemy all the time. Uh, even if it's just one big villain, the layer actions mean that there's more going on. Yep. Uh, it doesn't always have to be, you know, here's a bunch of mooks to fight too. No, it can just be the layer action. You know, this happens, you have to deal with it. But I, I really do think you should not necessarily feel like you have to stop them from using their ability to do something cool. Um, that is a problem a lot of, that was my problem when I first was dealing with flying characters. We had an Arakoa barbarian. This was like second edition rules. And I kept making it like his flight useless. And finally, when he, he came to me, he's like, what's the point of me having flight if I never get to use it, if yeah. it never does anything. And I'm like, you're right. That is correct. I, I have messed this up. So, do take them into account and occasionally have them. Somebody else might be flying. Somebody else might have, they might've gotten a, a grapple launcher to deal with you. Don't trivialize their abilities. So they don't feel like there's any point to having it. Sure. That, that'd be what I would say. Absolutely. I feel like there are ways in which you could like put in mechanics that could limit it. Also, like if you have something where you don't want them, you want it to be more challenging for them where they're not just kind of bypassing things because they can fly or making things super trivial because they could fly. Like maybe you say this area has strong winds, so it's difficult to rain, your speed is cut in half. Maybe there's some specific flying monster in the air that only attacks you when you're up there. Like you could, I think you could add creative things that can limit the ability. Well, limit the ability when it's important, when you're trying to make something challenging or more difficult or more interesting, but, you know, still let them use it and do things. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, also always think about where they're fighting because sometimes flight is great. Other times, what good is it going to do you? I mean, this is a 10 by 10 by 10 room. Mm -hmm. Now you're up at the ceiling. I can still hit you with my pole arm. You know, it's, you're not that far away, you know, so <clears throat> keep that in mind, but yeah. And sometimes just having one character who can fly isn't going to make a big difference. Like if you have a pool of lava that you need to get over, having one character be able to just fly over it, that's a very limited value because you yeah. still have the rest of the party. I mean, you can do something cool. Like, you know, I'm going to take the rope across and tie it to something over there yeah. and the rest of you. Yeah. And that's great. I have no problem with that. That's why shouldn't they be able to do that? They've got the flying guy. Why shouldn't he do that? Yeah, yeah but yeah, yeah, definitely. I think Liz is really on point about the, you know, come up with creative obstacles and don't, and don't use them constantly. 
Don't like every time they walk out of the tavern. Oh, there's a monster up there again. <laughs> Why is that thing following us? I hate flying PCs. <laughs> oh, good and, stuff. And that also that also lets you shake up things for the players too, so they don't they don't just know. Oh, well, this time I can just fly, and it's no big deal. You can say when they start flying, it's like, oh no, there's something new and different and challenging here that you have to think about. So it's not just they. Flying is their only trick, and they use it all the time. Add different, unique challenges that they can that they can play around with. And then the other thing, the other side of that coin, though, too, is and when you do get to a point where their flying does become useless, it becomes an impactful moment too. Like if you just let them mm-hmm. have it up to that point, and then you have something that takes it away, whether it's a a big bad that has planned for that particular moment to eliminate that skill or to make it more treacherous to do so, that becomes more impactful. It's like, I, I liken it to the old days of the comics when Spider-Man would run out of webbing and like be mm, plummeting yeah. to his death. It was like, a, it didn't happen all of the time. But when it did, it was, you know, a big thing like, oh, what's going to happen now? Um, so like, you can have it be like this big story or pivotal moment where the character has to figure out a clever way around it or deal with it. And then if you just let them have it the entire time, it means that much more. But yeah, there's a lot of ways to deal with it. Hopefully that helps answer your question. Uh, Liz, would you like to hit our last one? I think we have time for one more. Um, okay. One more question. Let's see. Well, this is one I don't actually have an answer to. Uh, question for Tavern Watch. Piggybacking off the Sinister Six question for the Blizzard Watch pre-show, how would you make a functioning Sinister Six in a TTRPG that doesn't immediately begin to tear itself apart? What motivations would you give them to stay together instead of trying to run it, to rule it all by themselves? And this is from Tsumi. I mean, it depends on if you, are you asking to literally create the various Marvel supervillains from the Sinister Six? Or are you asking how to make a group of villains who work together? Let's do a group uh, of villains that work together. That would normally not be because of egotistic. Yeah. Uh, for me, it comes down to one of the best uh, modules I've ever played that was a pre-made was a, a module called Slavers. And it was a sequel to the original Secret of the Slave Lords uh, mm. mega adventure. Um, slavers was those guys came back after they got soundly thrashed for being slavers because slavery is bad, just in case you need to hear that. Um, <laughs> and the thing about it was when they came back, they, they, they reunified, they got some new members, the, the, the big three from the original organization were there again. <clears throat> when, when they came back, first off, they learned from their defeat. Hmm. They were like, oh, we're not having that again. None of, none of that. We're not underestimating. We're not going to like take a bunch of people into our captivity and then like have them break out and kick our butts. None of that's happening. We're, we're doing this differently. More importantly, though, even though they were all evil, they weren't stupid. Mm. Like mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. of the things, the, the province of villains who like one of the things I remember like hearing very carefully, from, this is a, a Discworld quote uh, from Terry Pratchett. But one of the things he said was, if, if anyone's ever got you under their sights, if they've ever got you dead to rights and they're going to kill you, pray it's an evil man. Because evil people like to be in power. They like to be to brag and boast and, and make sure you know what's coming because they, they get a sense of superiority out of it. But a good person will just kill you because they've decided this person has to die. They'll just kill you and move on because it's not good. It's not fun. It's not exciting to them. They just get, It's an unpleasant task that needs to be completed. 
And that's why you want to have in keep that in mind when running your evil characters is that a smart evil character will be aware of this mm -hmm. and will not go into it. They will not play games with you, the player, and they will not betray their allies without cause. This doesn't mean you can't have them eventually betray each other because, you know, it's, it's such a good villainous trope, but <clears throat> not everybody is chaotic evil. Yeah. There's, there's, and if, even if you're not using alignments, which I, I rarely actually use alignments when I run D, but even if you're not using alignments, not everybody is a maniac who is, you know, doing what they're doing because they enjoy evil. You know, they're not like gentlemen to evil. Like th this, <laughs> this group had a goal. They wanted to dominate a part of the world. And like each of them had a sphere of interest within that, that they wanted to be in charge of. And it was mutually beneficial to them to work together. There's and. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I I think that was pretty much my point. Go for it. So there, there's actually a game that exists that is based entirely around kind of this concept. Um, and while I know Matt's not the biggest fan of the the system, um, Necessary Evil is it's a supers game. It's in the Savage World system, but the concept is pretty simple. All of the heroes of Earth are dead. There are no superheroes anymore. They've been wiped out by an alien invasion. The only thing that are left are super villains. They don't have a choice but to work together to stop the alien invasion because they were the only ones that had contingency plans in place to survive the initial onslaught. And it is in their best interest to essentially step up and to fight back. And it doesn't make them heroes, but it also means that they're not very likely to backstab each other because they need each other. Right. It's a scenario where the villains need to work together for a larger threat. Um, and honestly, that is what the Sinister Six do in pretty much any representation where they're not just being comically evil. When they're working to fight against uh, Peter Parker or Spider-Man, they're doing it because they have a common enemy. They're doing it because they have a common goal. What happens after that goal is completed is a whole other story. But like Matt pointed out, the villains don't have to be dumb. They don't have to be mustache twirling evil they can be intelligent they can be you know pragmatic about it lex luther is a really good example of a comic book villain who's very pragmatic in his approach to being an evil genius he'll team up with anybody he'll he'll ride that partnership out until it's no longer useful for him, and then he'll deal with it. yeah and keep in mind luther is not above working with heroes yeah he's done it multiple like, times like if the world's at stake well i like the world i want to live in it I want to rule the um, world. I don't want this is where all my stuff is. Yeah. I don't want to get destroyed. <laughs> um, and that's the kind of thing you have to think about, like what the villains you're creating are doing. What are they there for? Yeah. Like, and, and another thing to keep in mind is you can definitely have different kinds of villains where they can work together. And the reason that they can work together is that they don't have any interest in what the other person is doing. Like one of them is a demon from the abyss. The other is an assassin from a small town who's who your characters, you know, have built up an enmity with over the course of the campaign. That assassin is fixated on these particular players. Yeah. Once that group is dead, that assassin's out. Like the, all I care about is killing them. Um, and you could totally, since there's a personal relationship, you could actually have a point where that assassin is fighting your party and the party is actually making persuasion checks. Like, look, you hate us, but he's a demon from the abyss. And the, the assassin's like, I really do hate you but you're right. He is probably already planning to betray me, planning to betray you. He's already <laughs> betrayed you. Oh yeah. Okay. And you, you can, 
you can make their sudden but inevitable betrayal work for you. Yep. Like the point where the I, I remember like this this actually sort of happened in the game we're we're, we're playing right now, <laughs> where in our first session back, <laughs> the Mitch, Mitch decided he was going to go talk to Verth the. The yeah. engine of destruction of the campaign, the chaotic neutral bringer of death. It, not not an evil being because it doesn't care about the things. It's it's it destroys things. That's its cosmic function. And Mitch is like, you probably don't have any friends. And the the the, the darkness beyond worlds was like friends. Like the concept of friendship had never been introduced to it, and he was doing so well on his roles that I'm like, okay. I haven't decided exactly what's going to happen because of this, but still something's going to happen because of this. Yeah. And I'll be upfront. Verth was going to be a major problem for the party, like a major problem because whilst he was not the one doing evil, that's, that's a different character that that's got a more personal stake. Verth is a destroyer and would definitely have fought them because that's what Verth does. Verth destroys things. And this little Kenku comes in and is like, no, I'll be your friend. And now the, the, the harbinger of destruction is like, what does that mean? It has, it's having an existential crisis, which I think is the perfect Mitchism. Yeah. So you can having the, a group of villains working against your heroes, it can absolutely work and it doesn't have to be flawless and perfect, but it can be really fun. Yeah. If you, if you do it right, if you mess around with how this is going to work, um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally, I am always of a mindset and this goes for, for players too. And for like, let's say for a moment, you're playing a, an evil character. You do not have to play your evil character like an idiot who constantly stabs himself in the back by, by sabotaging his party relations. You don't have to be doofenshmirtz. No, you can play an evil character who's evil because they're selfish Mm-hmm. And thinks about themselves first, but they the group is beneficial to them, and they want to maintain it. They don't want to destroy these relationships, and so that evil character is totally down uh, with you, with your group, and and is not going to backstab them or betray them because it wouldn't serve their interests. Uh, the enemy they're fighting, like w- one of the characters in the Pathfinder game I'm playing, is lawful evil. We're fighting demons; they're chaotic evil. He doesn't want chaos. He hates chaos. He's lawful. He wants everything to be lawful. He'll work with paladins against that. Yeah, absolutely. Me and these paladins, as long as there's a group of demons over there, we're good. The second the demons are gone, you know, who knows? But right now we have that common enemy and that common enemy is very strong. So I, I think these are things to keep in mind. You, you don't have to have your players mess around. Liz, anything to add to that? Just as a concept. You don't necessarily have to be like right up on the Sinister Six. Uh, no, I really think y'all have covered it. I mean, just because you have, there are lots of reasons for evil characters to work together. And you probably just have to kind of think about that. Why are these characters coming together? And you have to think about that even with campaigns where you have a bunch of good guys. Like in the Candlekeep game I've been running, one of the problems wa- that we got into early on is I a lot of the characters are very like task based. That's just the way their character concepts are like, particularly Ted who's playing a Warforged who just has this mission in mind. And uh, he had, you know, kind of a big early problem is, okay, why am I doing this? Because my mission is this. And the whole group walked away from like a big storyline I had because it's like, okay, we finished our mission. We don't have to investigate this crap. Whatever. <laughs> if there's an evil, if there's an evil cult, I, 
like like there was you know a maybe maybe not kind of evil cult going on and they're like well but we finished our job we don't care if a cult like does stuff (laughs) so it's like even with heroic groups you have to kind of think about okay why are they there why are they adventuring together because otherwise it can be kind of hard to stick yeah i mean motivation and motivation for grouping is is not just unique to to villains liz is absolutely correct so if you can think of a reason why go ahead you just have to think about it from a different angle but i think you always have to think about it at least a little bit Mm -hmm. i would agree but i think that's going to do it unless anybody has anything else that they want to add all right. Well, Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast site and community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast, a better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the queue, and an ads-free site experience. Um, I would like to thank you all who joined us for the live show and all of you at home that are listening to this recording. Again, if you have any questions for this or any of our other podcasts, be sure to send them in. Specify what show it's for. Uh, and we'll be more than happy to have a discussion or answer them as we can. Um, So with that, Liz, Matt, thank you very much for another lovely Saturday afternoon. 